Welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Grand Rounds, Connecticut Children's Office of Continuing Medical Education Pediatric Podcast. This podcast series will assist in developing new skill sets based on recent pediatric advances in a wide variety of specialties, identifying evidence-based data to support improved outcomes in pediatric healthcare delivery, increasing knowledge about research with implications for clinical practice. And now, here's Grand Rounds. Hi, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Grand Rounds. It's a uh, hybrid mode here. We have a, a nice audience here, a great residents and fellows and faculty uh, accompanying this great day. And uh, for all of you who are joining us virtually, uh, greatly appreciated. Uh, we're actually in conference room CND. I haven't been here in quite a long time. And we are surrounded by posters. And so those of you who are in the building here at 282, you can come down and also look at them in real time and ask questions of the presenters. We do have four presentations today that uh, will highlight some of the great work that is being done in, in research. This is uh, normally hosted by Dr. Sharon Smith and Dr. Justin Radolf. I know Dr. Radolf is a little bit under the weather, so he's joining us virtually. So thank you, Justin. I apologize that you couldn't be here. I know you really enjoy this day. It's an important day for you as in, in your research enterprise within Connecticut Children's. I'm going to ask Dr. Smith to come up and, and emcee the event. Uh, she is really a, a force in making sure that our residents and fellows uh, continue to do research. Uh, this is passion that she has and has had it for so many years uh, is admirable in the, in the way she has done it and, uh, and she does it with great energy uh, at all times. Uh, it's almost like a, you know she was still the first year resident when she talks about research and the pride she feels for each one of you as you get to present either locally or nationally uh, and we, we were at the Pediatric Academic Society meeting in Denver where Sharon actually joins us with her mother, who's also, she's an honorary member of the Department of Pediatrics and, and, uh, and gets to uh, go around and look at all the presentations that, and I, I know I saw some of you that came to, uh, to Denver and was able to look at your posters, really impressive amount of work. Uh, also, some of you were able to join us for the, uh, for the reception, which is a little more fun than, uh, you know, we always do. So again, I want to thank Dr. Radel for his advice and mentorship and push for, for research and Dr. Smith. And I'm going to ask Dr. Smith to come introduce each of the platform presentations. We do have four of them, three here, and uh, Vivian is joining us virtually. She's also been under the weather today. So uh, Dr. Smith, if you can come up, and again, thank you for everything that you do. Oh, my applause. The actual applause at Grand Rounds. Uh, I'm so excited to be in person for the first time in several years. Um, so Research Day, uh, as Dr. Salazar said, is, is near and dear to my heart. I, I do have great passion for all of our trainees who are learning and succeeding in their research work. I mean, we have people at the largest international pediatric research uh, event in the world, and we have our people are there presenting their work. For those of you who were there and those of you who are presenting here, big pat on the back to yourselves. You guys are phenomenal. Let me give you all a big... Big round of applause. Well done, guys. So putting together research day takes a huge amount of time and effort. Um, and Amanda Ross, you guys can applaud in the room. Amanda is amazing. She helps collect abstracts, collates them, sends them out to abstract reviewers, collects scores, helps put it together. Organizing this day is, is just an amazing amount of effort, and I could not do this without you. So Amanda, thank you so much. 
Uh, and Justin, I'm sorry you're not here. Normally he would be moderating, so I will do a terrible job in your stead, but I will, I will do my best. We miss having you here. And to our reviewers, uh, our abstract reviewers, I think somewhere in the chat, there is a lovely QR code somewhere that you can look at, uh, that you can see all of the abstracts in their entirety. Uh, at the very end are all the, uh, a list of all of our reviewers. So thank you uh, to the faculty as well for doing that. It, uh, uh, this could not happen without them. I will quit talking so we can enjoy our research presentations. Uh, and our very first presenter today uh, is going to be uh, Dr. Sydney Stewart, who is one of our rising TL3 residents, uh, who's going to talk to you about her research project. Doctor? Good morning, everyone. I'm going to talk about the impact of COVID-19 on the management of acute bronchiolitis. So first off, what is bronchiolitis? It's a common lung infection in children one month to two years of age, most commonly caused by RSV, but can be caused by numerous other microorganisms as well. There's an element of excess mucus production causing mucus plugging, and some amount of smooth muscle bronchospasm, which can lead to increased work of breathing, respiratory distress, and even difficulty with feeding. Um, it's the leading cause of infant hospitalization, mm -hmm. and Studies show that supportive care is the gold standard, that bronchodilators and steroids don't change disease outcomes, and evidence-based reviews don't support diagnostic testing. In fact, some studies have shown that getting XX chest x-rays can lead to misdiagnosis of atelectasis for pneumonia, and then children get antibiotics that they don't necessarily need. And then we have COVID-19, which is a viral illness with overlapping signs and symptoms of other viral illnesses, making it more difficult to figure out and manage and treat. And then the evaluation treatment may include more modalities than you would normally use for things such as acute bronchiolitis, and then especially if you're concerned about MISD. So how did the pandemic alter bronchiolitis? We had fewer cases of bronchiolitis with the initiation of precautions. Social distancing and masking really brought down our cases. And then we saw a resurgence of cases and restrictions eased outside of the normal respiratory season. We started seeing cases late spring and early summer. And many hospitals have shown that COVID-19 itself is not a major cause of bronchiolitis. The purpose of this study is to evaluate the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the evaluation and treatment of young children with acute bronchiolitis. We used a retrospective cohort study using two study periods, the pre-COVID time period, including January 1st, 2018 to December 31st, 2019. And our COVID time period was June 1st, 2021 to December 31st, 2021. And all of our data was acquired via the Acute Bronchiolitis Clinical Pathway Database at CCMC. Our inclusion criteria included children evaluated in the Connecticut Children's ED. They had to be within those two study periods. They had to be diagnosed with acute bronchiolitis by ICD-10 codes, and they had to be one month to 24 months of age. Children were excluded if they were less than 35 weeks gestational age of birth, if they had a prior wheezing episode, if they had any kind of um, chronic disease that would make management and treatment different than you would for the normal acute bronchiolitic presenting to the ED, which could include BPD or other chronic respiratory diseases, anyone with active cardiac disease, or congenital chromosomal or neuromuscular abnormalities. The data we looked at include demographic characteristics, so sex, race, insurance type. Um, we looked at children who received chest radiographs in the emergency room, who received bronchodilators, steroids, antibiotics, laboratory testing like CBC, CRP, and then we looked at admission rates as well. So 
So for our demographic characteristics, we had a larger population size pre-COVID than we did COVID. There was a larger study period pre-COVID, but we did find that our demographics were very similar for both of the study periods for sex, race, and insurance type. So first we looked at overall resource utilization. On the y-axis, you have the percentage of patients that received the resource. And then on the x-axis, you have the resource including x-rays, bronchodilators, and laboratory studies first off that all look very, very similar in percentages. And then steroids, which looks like there might have been a dip in 2021, but these were not um, significant values. And then we looked at admission rates for bronchiolitis. And interestingly, it looks like we had an increase in admission rates in 2021 than we did pre-COVID with 35% in 2021 in comparison to 25% pre-COVID. And this was statistically significant with a p-value of 0.001. Then we looked at the resource utilization in admitted patients only. And same for bronchodilators, laboratory studies, and corticosteroids, there wasn't any significance. But we did find that with chest x-rays, there was a reduction in the amount of children who received a chest x-ray in the ED that were then later admitted, with 42% in the pre-COVID time period and 30% in 2021. And this was significant with a p-value of 0.01. So when we initially started this study, we had thought that maybe we were deviating from our pathway. It's hard during a pandemic to kind of keep to your standards, but Wonderfully, we found that overall resource utilization was similar during the two time periods and that our pathway worked really well even during a worldwide pandemic. Interestingly, though, we admitted more children in 2021 than we did pre-COVID. And it leads me to question, were children more likely to present to the ED if they had more severe presentations than they were prior to the pandemic? Or as clinicians, were we more likely to admit for the same severity for concern that possibly they would have poor outcomes? And then with questions and concerns initially of MISD. And then we have the question of how we had fewer admitted patients who received chest x-rays in the ED in 2021. And this one leaves me questioning and I'll have to ponder it further. So the limitations for the study, this is a single center study. So generalizability to other hospitals. Um, and then a retrospective study as well. So we can kind of determine associations but not causation. So in conclusion, uh, we found that resource utilization for children evaluated in the Connecticut Children's Emergency Department and admitted for acute bronchiolitis was similar before and during the COVID-19 pandemic. Thank you, uh, Dr. Stewart, for that amazing presentation. And I, too, am floored that we did so very well. So our next speaker is actually going to be uh, Dr. Vivian Solomon. She is a graduating resident from our program. We're very excited for her and sad that she can't be here in person. She's not uh, feeling particularly well. And we're going to switch over so she can uh, virtually present from a safe place and not share her illness with us. We appreciate that, Vivian. We love you a lot, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here today. And I'm so sorry I can't be there in person. Um, today, I'll be talking about my research entitled Pediatric Functional Gastrointestinal Disorders in Patients with Postural Tachycardia Syndrome and Disorders of Hypermobility. Functional GI disorders, or FGIDs, are a complex group of disorders that involves multiple biopsychosocial factors. It leads to altered enteric sensation and signaling and involves dysregulation of the autonomic nervous system. 
Due to its complexity, it is now actually called this order of gut-brain interaction to describe its physiology. Commonly in our GI clinic, we see these pediatric patients with FGIDs having a co-diagnosis of POTS or postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. In adults, on the other hand, adult patients with FGIDs have been shown to have a comorbid diagnosis of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, a type of hypermobility syndrome. However, it has yet to be described um, the, the prevalence of having FGIDs as well as POTS and hypermobility has yet to be described. Therefore, the purpose of our study is to describe children with both POTS and hypermobility syndrome who have been seen at Connecticut Children's over a five-year period and to characterize their association with FGIDs. This was a retrospective cohort study done at our institution, a single tertiary pediatric center, performed over a five-year period from January 1st, 2016 to December 31st, 2020 by reviewing their electronic medical records or EPIC charts. A diagnosis of POTS and hypermobility was established by screening their ICD-10 codes that were assigned from their medical history or the visits that we were looking into as highlighted below, either a diagnosis of dysautonomia in the form of POTS or a diagnosis of hypermobility in the form of hypermobility syndrome or Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Each chart was then hand audited using and used a predetermined criteria that was validated in terms of diagnostic criteria. To establish a diagnosis, we used the specific criteria shown below. For FGIDs, we used the Rome 4 criteria published in 2016. To establish a diagnosis of POTS, we used a diagnostic criteria of an increase in heart rate by 30 beats per minute within 10 minutes of standing or a positive tilt table test, and to establish a diagnosis of hypermobility syndrome in the form of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome or joint hypermobility, we use a button score cutoff greater than four or a positive genetic testing. This is a flowchart showing the results that we had obtained. There were about 900,000 outpatient visits within the five-year time period that I had spoken about before. And about 75 of those outpatient visit encounters had established diagnoses of both POTS and hypermobility syndrome. Using our validated screening criteria, we were able to cut this down to about half. Only 37 patients out of the 75 that were assigned a diagnosis of POTS and Ehlers-Danlos or joint hypermobility had a confirmatory testing. And within the 37 patients that we had uh, we had obtained, we were able to identify which patients had a diagnosis of FGID and which did not. This table shows the demographic characteristics. On the left, you would see the patients with a diagnosis of FGID, and on the right are patients without FGID. And as you can see on the top row, um, there were primarily adolescent patients and primarily females, and highlighted in yellow are the the statistically significant results that we had obtained. So these are patients that had a diagnosis of POTS, hypermobility, as well as a co-diagnosis of FGID, on average, for taking a higher number of GI medications, had a higher number of GI visits, as well as other outpatient visits in the form of cardiology, pain clinic, rheumatology clinic, and others, and overall had a higher number of admissions to the hospital. 
this chart shows the type of confirmatory testing uh, that was used to diagnose POTS, and about 33 out of the 37 patients had an increase of 30 beats per minute for their heart rate. And this chart shows the type of FGID that these patients had. On the leftmost side of the chart shows the most common type of FGID, namely irritable bowel syndrome, followed by functional abdominal pain, functional nausea, functional vomiting, and least common were nausea and dyspepsia, functional dyspepsia, and functional dysphagia. This chart shows the healthcare utilization that are statistically significant as shown in the prior chart. On the leftmost portion, you could see that the blue table is patients with FGID, while red is patients without FGID. And as you could see, patients with a co-diagnosis of FGID, in addition to their POTS and hypermobility, on average, have a higher number of outpatient visits, have a higher number of total medications, have a higher number of hospital days, and have a higher number of GI outpatient visits and admissions. This shows the annual cost that these patients accrue, either from the inpatient setting shown in yellow or the outpatient setting shown in red, and the total is shown in blue. And you can see an overall increase in the trend of the annual cost that these patients accrue. There is a slight dip in the 2019 year period, likely due to the coronavirus pandemic. This looks at the outpatient costs when we look into it adding a co-diagnosis of FGID, again, FGID being shown in blue. And similar to the prior charts, the outpatient costs of taking care of these patients is overall trending in nature when you look at it from a year-to-year -year basis. Limitations of our study is that it was retrospective in nature and it was performed in a single institution, therefore limiting its generalizability. We are looking at a very specific group of patients and there tends to be multiple confounding diagnoses as we started looking into the patient demographics. A lot of these patients also suffer from psychiatric diagnoses such as anxiety and depression that can exacerbate their symptomatology either from a gastrointestinal perspective or from this autonomia perspective as has been shown in other research, therefore skewing our data. So as we saw, POTS and hypermobility syndrome is fairly uncommon in pediatric patients. Using our confirmatory testing, we saw about 0.004% prevalence within a five-year period. And using a diagnostic criteria is extremely important as we were able to cut down patients to about 49%. And patients with a co-diagnosis of POTS and hypermobility have a 56% higher chance of having a co-diagnosis of FGID, which is higher than the general population. In addition, this, spe uh, this specific patient group overall takes more medications for their GI symptoms, have higher number of outpatient appointments from a GI perspective or otherwise, and overall has more hospital admissions, therefore contributing to their higher trend in, in healthcare costs that they accrue. Our conclusion is that a cohort of children with postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome and hypermobility in the form of Ehlers-Danlos and joint hypermobility, who also had a co-diagnosis of functional gastrointestinal disorders, had a higher healthcare utilization than children without functional disorders. I wanted to say thank you to the rest of the team. Dr. Baker is in the audience today to help with answering questions at the end of the session.
Thank you so much, Vivian. And again, we're sorry that you can't be here to share uh, in the festivities. Lovely presentation. And again, we'll do questions later. So if you're putting questions into the uh, into the question and answer, we'll get to those at the end of the presentations. Very excited. Our next presentation is going to be by uh, Dr. Candace Jersey, a graduating uh, fellow in uh, pediatric emergency medicine, and will be staying on as faculty with us. Super excited for you uh, to share your research. Erythromide overall is a very well-studied drug. It's frequently used in both pediatric and adult populations. It has a very low risk of side effects with a single low dose, especially when given to a healthy patient population. So furosemide may provide the quick, effective, and non-invasive bladder filling method that we have been searching for. The purpose of this study is to determine if low-dose furosemide plus IV fluid administration results in faster bladder filling time than IV fluid administration alone in females age 8 to 18 with suspected ovarian torsion. This study is a randomized, placebo-controlled, single-blinded pilot study being performed out of the CCMC emergency department. We use convenient sampling for this study. Inclusion criteria is any female age 8 to 18 years old who is undergoing a transabdominal ultrasound for suspected ovarian torsion. Exclusion criteria included a history of renal GU or pelvic anomalies, multiple chronic illnesses, including systemic neurologic abnormalities, critically ill patients. So basically we were looking for healthy patients for this pilot study or overall generally healthy patients. Anyone with a contraindication to furosemide was excluded and anyone with diuretic use within the past year, we were looking for um, diuretic naive patients. And of course, anyone who had a full bladder at the time that they came to the ED was not eligible for the study. Enrolled patients were randomized either to the experimental group that received 0.1 milligrams per kilogram with a max of five milligrams of furosemide or the control group that received a 5cc normal saline flush. Now patients and parents were blinded to which group they were in until the end of the study and the um, enrolling provider did not know which group the patient would be in at the time of consent and enrollment. All patients received at least one normal saline bolus of 20 cc's per kilogram, uh, and any, addition, any additional boluses were left up to the discretion of the treating provider and team. Point of care ultrasound, or POCUS exam, of the bladder shape and volume was performed every 30 minutes until, a large, until the bladder was large and ovoid in shape, and at that point, the radiology ultrasound technician was informed and the patient was brought to ultrasound. This is a very brief demographic slide. Of course, all patients were female. Um, we did break the groups into age range and time of day for the purposes of randomization. Um, at this point um, in the pilot study, and we are still actively enrolling, um, we analyzed 20 patients. Um, the older age group range uh, clearly fell into this study more than the younger age range, but it is pretty evenly split between groups. So the primary outcome for this study was the time from medication administration to the time of large bladder on point of care ultrasound exam. The furosemide group uh, reached a large bladder in a median time of 24 minutes, while the normal saline or control group had a median of 123 minutes, giving us a statistically significant difference of 99 minutes with a p-value of less than 0.001. And you can see that laid out nicely in the dot plot below. 
In terms of some secondary outcomes, we also looked at the time from medication administration to the time of radiology performed ultrasound. And that time for the sabrosamide group was 47 minutes and uh, median time for the normal saline or control group of 160 minutes with a difference of 113 minutes, which was significant with a p-value of less than 0.001. The time from medication administration to radiology ultrasound read was a median of 90 minutes for the sporosamide group and 181 minutes for the normal saline group, giving us a difference of 91 minutes with a p-value of 0 0.002, which is also statistically significant. And I wanna point out, while it is statistically significant, we, um, before starting the study, decided that a time of 30 minutes would be a clinically significant uh, difference, um, which you can see we did achieve um, beyond that for all three of these uh, parameters. So in this pilot study, ferrosamide administration led to faster bladder filling times, faster time to ultrasound completion and read. There were no reported adverse effects from the ferrosamide. Um, and unfortunately, we did not see an overall decrease in ED length of stay though. And I wanna speak to these points just a little bit. The ultimate goal would be to diagnose and manage ovarian torsion faster. Now, given that ovarian torsion is a relatively rare diagnosis, we would need very large numbers and likely a multi-center study to truly show something like that. I would like to suggest though, that a faster bladder filling time and faster time to ultrasound completion in read should lead to a faster diagnosis and an ultimately faster time to the operating room and ultimate management. Another great thing that I would like to prove um, would be that we could get patients through the ER faster. Now, even though this uh, analysis did not show that, we do only have 20 patients in this um, current analysis. And I think a big part of that is the small numbers that we have at the moment. Like I said, we are still actively recruiting. There are many different variables involved in how long a patient is in the emergency department. There's individual patient variables, individual provider uh, variables, and just ED environmental variables on any given day. And I think with some larger numbers, we would be able to um, even out those variables between groups and hopefully see a difference. Ultimately though, I believe that ferrosamide administration may change medical practices in patients who are awaiting pelvic ultrasound. So as I mentioned, there are some limitations to this study. The biggest one I believe being the small sample size. And we are still actively recruiting to hopefully enlarge that sample size and further look at some of these um, secondary outcomes. We did use convenient sampling and there is a potential for provider bias given that this was not double blinded. Um, we will later on in the study be looking at inter-rater reliability that should help us further um, evaluate for provider bias. So in conclusion, this study demonstrated a significantly faster bladder filling time with ferrosamide administration and a cohort of pediatric females undergoing transabdominal ultrasound for suspected ovarian torsion. These results suggest that ferrosamide administration will lead to faster ultrasound evaluation and ultimate diagnosis of ovarian torsion. I would like to thank my co-investigators and contributors, Dr. Henry Chakaiza, Dr. Andrew Hegland, Dr. Douglas Moot, and Dr. Michael Brimacombe. I'd also like to thank the entire ultrasound um, radiology department and the entire CCMCED for all of their help with my recruitment.
and we will be doing questions at the end. <laughs> That's how you get a platform talk in a meeting is doing a prospective randomized study as a fellow. That is a huge undertaking, so well done, uh, Dr. Jersey. And uh, our uh, final presenter for the morning is going to be Dr. Uh, Poonam Thakur, who is one of our graduating uh, neonatology fellows. Doctor? Thank you, Dr. Smith, for the introduction. Hello, everyone. Um, thank you for this opportunity to present my quality improvement project, which is the impact of the multi-level standardized respiratory care practices on intubation and ventilator days in VLBW infants. I do not have any financial disclosures. Uh, these are my objectives for this presentation. So rest knowledge. So employing protective lung strategies in VLBW infants is effective in limiting lung injury and thereby preventing the development of chronic lung disease. Uh, also, the recent studies have shown that uh, initial management with nasal CPAP is an acceptable alternative to intubation and uh, prophylactic surfactant in spontaneously breathing preterm infants. Uh, so before um, implementation of our project, our uh, practice was to routinely intubate uh, our babies who are born less than 26 weeks gestational age in DR without a standard ventilation strategy guidelines. Also, our one data on inborn VLBW infants revealed that uh, increased rate of chronic lung disease from 15% in 2017 to 31% in 2018. So, uh, for, uh, so we decided to do this uh, quality improvement project for which our SMART aim is consist of global aim which was to reduce the incidence of chronic lung disease in our inborn VLBW infants by 30% by October 2021. And to fulfill this aim, our improvement aim was to decrease the rate of DR intubation by 15% within 12 months by implementation of a delivery room bundle. And our interim aim was to reduce the total number of uh, ventilation days by 10% within 12 months using standardized intubation and extubation criteria. Uh, our performance measures consist of a primary outcome measures, which were uh, inborn VLBW infants who were intubated in DR, who received volume-targeted ventilation as initial mode and their ventilation days per month. Process measures uh, were uh, inborn, in, inborn VLBW infants who were stabilized on nasal CPAP in DR and who received surfactant in DR if intubated. And our balancing measures were rate of development of early pneumothorax, that is within first week of life, and development of hypothermia on admission, that is temperature less than 36.4 degrees Celsius. And this slide here shows the drivers of change. It's a busy slide, but basically this is consists of our SMART aim that leads to five different primary drivers, which further leads to various secondary drivers, and that leads to change ideas uh, that help navigate this uh, project. So plan to study cycle one consists of uh, awareness to the project via reminders at hurdles and DMS board in the morning, via NICU news and cornerstone, as well as conducting regular monthly respiratory task force meeting. Cycle two consists of uh, the DR stabilization algorithm, which is shown on the left. This was basically adopted from the NRP and we added few steps related to our QI, which are shown in green boxes. 
as, as well as creation of this uh, DR data collection, which is shown on the right. Cycle three and four consist of continued education of multidisciplinary team uh, via huddles required online education and DR simulation sessions, availability of bubble bottle nasal CPAP in DR and addition of caffeine in admission order set. And our cycle five consists of uh, this intubation and extubation algorithm um, that was uh, created and implemented for the infants who arrives uh, to the unit intubated which is shown on the left, and uh, as well as infant who arrives to the unit uh, on nasal CPAP, which is shown on right. So in terms of results, uh, the baseline characteristics of all inborn VLBW infants uh, pre and post intervention were similar, except the uh, magnesium exposure was uh, uh, significantly decreased in our post intervention group. Uh, this is uh, our uh, P, uh, control P chart on percent of inborn VLBW infants who were intubated in DR, uh, where X axis represent uh, the number of infants born that per month, and Y axis represents uh, the percent of infants intubated in DR. And this uh, green line here uh, shows the uh, is our uh, central line. And as you can see, after implementation of our PDSA cycles. Uh, a special cause variation was observed, shifting our central line from 44.2% to 28% and further to 18.4%. Uh, further on gestational age subgroup analysis, uh, there was a significant decrease in percent of inborn VLBW infants uh, intubated in DR for uh, age group less than equal to 25 weeks as well as uh, greater than or equal to 28 weeks. Uh, as a uh, balancing measure, we, we examined the rate of all pneumothorax and hypothermia on admission, and as you can see from this table, there was no significant difference between the groups. This is our control X chart on total ventilation days per month in inborn VLBW infants, and, as, uh, and you can see that uh, after the implementation of our PDSA cycle, there was a special cause variation shifting our central line from 69 days to 47 days. And on the gestational age subgroup analysis, uh, there was a significant decrease in median ventilation days for uh, groups uh, who were born 26 and 27 weeks, as well as uh, greater than or equal to 28 weeks. Uh, this table here compares the clinical practices before and after implementation of our QI. And as you can see from this table, uh, the infant, uh, infants who did not require intubation during the NICU stay uh, significantly increased, as well as infants who received surfactant via insure procedure and stabilized on PRVC mode also increased in our post-intervention group significantly. This figure here shows our one data on percent of chronic lung disease in inborn VLBW infants who were born between 2017 and 2021. And as you can see, in 2017, the rate of chronic lung disease in our unit was 15%. And in 2018, for some unclear reason, uh, that rate increased to 31%. So in 2019, we decided to do this QI. And you see the result, uh, the rate uh, came down to 17% and further to 6.5%. So from this project, we learned that implementing multi-level standardized respiratory care practices resulted in our ability to stabilize most VLBW infants on nasal CPAP in the DR, significantly decreasing DR intubation rate, exposure to early mechanical ventilation, and overall total ventilation days. 
the uh, main challenge we faced uh, during this um, project in the beginning was that uh, most of our staff comes from uh, different backgrounds and they are comfortable with their historical practice pattern so in the beginning we had a we did had a challenge to implement this change but uh, with uh, effective and timely communication as well as involvement of multidisciplinary staff it was made possible and team actually was very receptive of this change uh, our next step is uh, continued work will focus on early surface and administration for the infants incubated in the dr and monitoring of our balancing measures and this is my amazing team without whom this project won't be a success so i would like to thank them uh, these are my references and thank you all for listening to my presentation that was just spectacular so the next uh, session, what we'd like to do now is to move on to our uh, question and answer session. And before we do that, I'd like to see if our presenters, if you wouldn't mind coming up um, one at a time. And Viv and I have a gift for you uh, in my office when you get back. Um, so presenters, if you'd like to come up and get your certificates, and then if you want to stay up here to do some questions, that would be lovely. And then uh, next, uh, Dr. Candice Jersey, if you'd like to come up. And, uh, and, and Dr. Uh, Poonam Asakor, if you'd like to come up. And Vivian, uh, we, we are thinking of you, and I have your certificate, so we're going to clap you one more time anyway. Thank you. So from our audience group, does anyone here have uh, questions for any one of our presenters? Yes, Dr. Khan? Uh, Vivian, can you hear me? I was curious, um, I know you looked specifically into the overlap of functional GI disorders and POTS. Did you look at any, rather than looking at both of those other two, did you look into functional GI and, and POTS and functional GI and hypermobility in your analysis? And, and if so, what, what kind of results did you find in terms of the overlaps of just two rather than all three conditions? Um, we. Thank you for the question. The question was, um, for those who couldn't hear, whether we looked at the co-diagnosis of FGIDs as well as POTS separately from a co-diagnosis of FGIDs as well as hypermobility syndrome. We actually did not do that. We did the triple diagnosis, which is POTS, hypermobility, and FGIDs. There's been data from old research showing that FGIDs and POTS in pediatric patients are very um, pretty common um, um, and in adults, um, not in pediatrics, it's been shown that FGIDs are pretty common with hypermobility. Um, but we could easily look at that, but I'm sure the data it's much higher compared to the general population, especially just looking back at the prevalence and how common it is in many of the providers that I've talked to, not just in the GI setting, but also in genetics, cardiology, rheumatology, et cetera. At uh, FSGIID, it had more medications, more visits. Was there any correlation between the medications and POTS? Like, uh, what medications were they on? Did you see those were probably exacerbating or causing POTS? Yeah. Your analysis? Yeah. 
um, we saw that the types of medications they were on, not only was it for their GI symptoms, but their other comorbid diagnoses. So a lot of these patients had psychiatric medications on board, had a lot of PPIs and H2 blockers on board, and had a lot prior to their diagnoses of POTS medications that um, were controlling a lot of their other symptoms, but not necessarily any of them that would cause them to have POTS. Um, I know certain psychiatric medications can cause this autonomic symptoms, but we didn't specifically look at that data group, but that would be interesting to see if uh, the diagnosis of POTS is caused by one of the medications that they're on specifically for their psychiatric diagnoses. This question for, for Sydney and, and great, great presentation on the bronchiolitis issues. Uh, can you comment on the, on the age of presentation, whether younger kids, older kids, and and perhaps because they you know the if, if it was older slightly older population, right, they weren't exposed at an early time maybe brings them in sicker. So can you comment on on that? That's actually a really good question. I didn't specifically look at the age, just that they fit within the category. So I'd have to go back and look and see how the breakdown is actually. Yeah, I'm guessing the the lack of of uh, herd immunity if you may, yeah. probably set people up for a. August epidemic of bronchiolitis, which is never seen. Right? Yeah. I don't know if you're going to see that again this year, but it was something that, that you know, was a comment that I thought you probably should look at that. Definitely, yeah, that's a really great point. And I have, Candace, I have one for you as well. And uh, mm -hmm. the, any concerns with using a, a diuretic with a, in a child that potentially could be infected? Um, that, you know, again, if you're looking at a diagnosis of a, of, of you know, anatomical anomaly, but um, you're not sure yet, and this could be something else. And then you, could, you may be giving somebody who's like the fluid depleted a diuretic. So what are what are the concerns and sort of watch out so that you know you know that it's just it's not like a great tool, but it may be problematic. Yeah, definitely. So um, I mean, many of these children were working them up for appendicitis at the same time. Any sort of GI um, pathology, including ovarian torsion. And we did think long and hard about that, which is um, partly why um, we were enrolling only healthy at baseline patients to begin with as well. Um, I think other patients may benefit, but for the purposes of this study, we only enrolled healthy baseline patients. Um, everyone in the study gets at least one fluid bolus. Um, the goal is not to dehydrate patients. Anyone who is has a low blood pressure or is significantly tachycardic or has any vital sign instability um, that would make them critically ill or concerned for um, being in shock or anything such as that um, at the beginning when they came in was excluded from the study. Um, and patients were kept on the monitor, um, on continuous monitoring throughout the duration of the study to evaluate for that as well. So we did put a lot of safety measures in place. Um, I also didn't mention in the talk, but um, this was reviewed by the FDA as well um, prior to starting the study, um, who also believed that in this patient population, this was a safe use of furosemide. So that made us feel comfortable going forward. Thank you. <laughs> Any additional questions from our audience? I, I do have another one to put in for you. So, so, that, um, so tell me about surfactant. So if, if you're not intubating, you still, how do you get the surfactant? So 
uh, we are doing uh, something called interior procedures. So in fact, so before this project, we were like giving suspected uh, prophylactically for all babies. But after this uh, project, we stabilized uh, initially on legal CPAP and see there were no breathing and oxygen requirement. And then if they need the surfactant, then we do with the insure procedure, which is just to intubate the baby, give the surfactant, and activate. Yeah, so in that way, like, they are not uh, exposure to the uh, mechanical ventilator for a long period of time. Right, thank you. So going along, then I have a question as well. So now that we're doing the LISA procedure, Our CPD rates decreasing um, and affecting, you know, all their outcomes. Um, at this moment, it's hard to say how it's gonna impact. But again, it's uh, the main purpose of doing the Lisa study and giving the. Oh, sorry. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, so the main. Uh, the main uh, purpose of doing the LISA study, as you know, is to give the surfactant via um, uh, less invasive method. So the catheter we are using is very tiny, very flexible than the standard catheter we are using. So I think um, time will show us like how it's going to affect our chronic lung disease. But you know, uh, avoiding the prophylactically uh, avoiding use of prophylactic surfactant as well as uh, Prolonged uh, use of prolonged mechanical ventilation and the modes we are using, I think that definitely has helped us decrease our chronic bed, uh, chronic lung disease. Well, thank you, Dr. Smith and uh, Dr. Radels online and all of you who participated here in person. Uh, the posters are open for for review. I, I want to thank uh, Dr. Stewart, Dr. Solomon, Dr. Jersey, Dr. Takori, and then the poster presentations: Dr. Andreas, Uman, Dr. Khan, Dr. Gallagher, Dr. Mancini, Dr. Prasad. Dr. Saar, Dr. Scheisler, or Scheisler, perhaps. Dr. Solomon, Dr. Stewart, Dr. Swan, Dr. Barkey, Dr. Vargas has two, and some of them have two. So thank you very much for the work that you do. And on behalf of Connecticut Children's and UConn School of Medicine, thank you for an amazing, amazing work. This is a lot of work in the middle of your training. Uh, we're very proud of you and, uh, and wish you the best in, in this coming year and, uh, and the festivities that take place in June. For those of you online, please join us on uh, Tuesday. I think we have the award ceremony that's coming up. Uh, and then on the 18th, I believe, Dr. Smith, is the, the graduation um, that we have. And your as faculty, please join. Uh, Steve, thank you for making this possible and uh, the presentations. And uh, again, this is our first true hybrid grand rounds in about two and a half years or ever, probably. So it, we're working through the technicalities, but it actually worked. I liked it. So thank you, everyone. Be well. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Grand Rounds. For the most recent updates, please consider subscribing or find us on our Facebook group, Connecticut Children's Continuing Medical Education, or online at ConnecticutChildrens.org slash podcast slash grand dash rounds.